Now we're coming to the end of our study of Micah and seeing the beautiful pictures of who God is and what God is going to do for his people uh, in spite of their sinning is a, a tremendous picture that's given to us. And, and as we finish this, Lord willing, next week we're going to be spending our time with Elisha. And we talked about that we've been looking at Micah as it sets a framework for what's going on in Israel and Judah. It's been telling us about the wickedness, the injustice, the oppression, the sinning. All that is going on in Micah's day. And God is calling for his people. That's not how they're supposed to live. And ultimately, a judgment now is going to come upon them. Uh, We looked at last week, the first eight verses of Micah chapter six, where God then said, here's what I want. And in that, he said, it's not that I'm asking you to do the impossible. It's not that I'm asking you for a bunch of religious activity. That's not how I'm asking you to live in a broken world, but rather that you would love justice, show mercy, and walk humbly before your God. And so that has been the picture of what God says, I want my people to do. And now the rest of this prophecy is God saying, here's what he's going to do. And so our end is love mercy, walk humbly before God, show justice. And now God is going to respond and say, here's what I'm going to do. And in the process of him talking about this, we'll just be absolutely amazed about the character of God for all that we are seeing in the books of the Kings and all that we've seen the prophet Micah say about the way the people are. He ends with a thunderous picture of really the beautiful character and the amazing grace of God. So that's where we're going in our study tonight. In Micah chapter 6, and we are uh, picking up in verse 9, and and the the first truth that God is laying out is simply, uh, I'm not going to overlook these sins anymore. You will notice he says in verse 10 of of Micah 6, Can I forget any longer... The treasuries of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Simply just laying out, I can't watch this any longer. I'm not going to overlook these sins. Judgment has to happen. And so here is God saying, I see the wickedness and now it is time for God to act, which reminds us that just because God is patient and allows time to go by, we should not perceive his tolerance as permission, which sometimes we can do. It's like, well, the world just keeps going on and on and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And so clearly it must be okay. And here is God saying, no, I'm seeing everything that's going on and I'm allowing time. I'm waiting for people to return to me. But eventually I can't overlook the wickedness anymore. I see the sinning. I see the oppression. I see what everyone is doing. And God says, it is time now for me to act. And so now I'm going to do something. And the picture of judgment begins in verse 13. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. 
You will sow, but not reap. You will tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You will tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Almeri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. God says judgment has to happen. Now I'm going to do something about it. But did you notice how God says he's going to begin his judgment with his people? How he's going to begin the judgment with the nations? Notice that he says there in in verse 13 and verse 14, I'm going to take away your prosperity. He says there in verse 14, you're going to eat, but you're not going to be satisfied. He says, you're going to try to put away money and nothing's going to ever be saved. You're going to have your olives and your grapes, but you're not going to have any fruit that comes from that. You're never going to enjoy really the fruit of your labor. I'm going to take all of that away from you. And I think this is a very important picture. First, it reminds us that in the nation of Israel, that northern nation where here he's clearly talking about with the sins of Almeri and Ahab. We looked at the sinning that they were doing in Israel. Remember Jezebel, the wife of Ahab and all the wickedness that is going on at that time. And yet at that time, the nation was extremely prosperous. And notice now God says, I'm going to take that away from you. This is not going to be a prosperous nation anymore. Which leads us to understand a very important truth. God's in control of that. God's in control of that. It didn't matter what Israel's king did next. It didn't matter what policies the next Israel's king had. It didn't matter what he tried to do. If God says the nation's prosperity is over, then the nation's prosperity is over. And there wasn't anything anybody was going to be able to do about it. And it didn't matter who the next king was. It didn't matter what next ruler would rise up. If God says it's over, it's over. And I think it's also important to see that he even says that in regards to the people. He says of the people, your labor is going to be fruitless. You're going to work and work and work and work, and you're not going to see a thing from it. Imagine the idea. You're going to eat but not be satisfied. You're just going to labor away. You're going to be toiling, but you're not going to have anything to show for it. I think this is such an important principle that we need to recognize is that God is in control of that. God is in control of the rise and fall of nations and leaders. We've talked about that many times, not only in this book and in the book of Kings. We see that in the book of Daniel, all kinds of things. But I want you to observe something else is that God is in control of whether the nation has prosperity or not. And whatever Israel would try to do from this moment on, God says your time is done. It was going to be the end of their prosperity, the end of their gladness, the end of the oil and the wine. It was all now going to come to an end. It is a reminder to us that God is sovereign over all things. And if God wants to bless a nation, he will bless it. And if God wants to make a a nation destitute, then he will make it that as well. And there's nothing that we can do about that. God is in ultimate control of that. And I think that's such an important reminder for us is that God is trying to help us understand our need for dependence upon him. 
And the only action that could possibly exist is that we as the people would turn our hearts back to God. That we are turning to God and saying, we need to trust in him and not in ourselves and not in our abilities and not in our leaders, but in God. Because God is ultimately in control of that. And so often we think, no, no, that's not the case. We possess the power. We're going to make the outcome of these things. And God is saying, no, no. When your time is done, your time is done. You might think about how true that is in regards to so many of the world nations that even the scriptures record for us. One of the things that you see is you might remember in the days of Daniel where you have the, the Babylonian Empire and you have the Persians essentially ready to come in and overthrow them. Daniel is called in to uh, determine the handwriting on the wall. Now remember, they are eating and drinking and praising their gods. <laughs> they are living it up, lap of luxury in far, as far as they are concerned. And in one day, God threw them down and said, that's all for you. That was it. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care what your military might is. I don't care what your economic policy is. It was the end of Babylon. Their time was done. And that's the way God operates. And that's what we must understand as well as the way God operates is these things are in the hands of God. And we must be grateful for what we have, but understand it's ultimately his concern. And ultimately, he is sovereign over these things. So that is the first Picture The first truth that God is, is picturing here in, in this chapter, in chapter six, is it is time for judgment to come and that judgment would begin by the elimination of their prosperity. You will notice that Micah takes the scene now in chapter seven. He speaks up yet again and he starts lamenting for what he sees happening in, in the nation. These first few verses of chapter 7 are, are quite a statement about the spiritual condition of what's supposed to be the people of God, a spiritual nation that God has chosen. But you'll notice in verse 1, he describes the, the, the nation as completely lacking any fruit whatsoever, as if I'd gone out into the harvest and it had already been plucked. It's already gone there's nothing left. And here's what he means by that in verse two. The godly have perished from the earth and there is no one upright among the people. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil and to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And as, just as much as the strong man utters the evil desires of his soul and thus they weave it together. Here's this picture of there is nobody faithful left in the nation of Israel. There's just wickedness all around. He's describing the image as if being surrounded by wicked people. He even describes there in verse four when he says the best of them are like a briar and the most upright of them like a thorn hedge. That's hilarious. <laughs> the best person that's walking around in Israel is, is no better than a thorn bush. There's no value here. There's nothing good left in Israel. The decay and the wickedness have so seeped into the nation that you can't find good anywhere. You say, no, surely there's probably some good somewhere. Keep listening. Verse five. Do not trust a neighbor. Do not have confidence in your friend. 
Guard the doors of your mouth and from her who lies in your arms. Here is a picture of even those who are friends of God. They are the ones who are unable to be trusted any longer. In verse 6, you'll see the same thing. The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own house. Here is a picture of, okay, so you can't trust your friends, but can you imagine not even being able to trust your family? The wickedness is so bad. Your close friends can't be trusted. He says, don't put confidence in them. And he says, you better not even trust your family. He says, their father, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against the mother. The in-laws are against each other. The man's enemies are the people in his own house. Here's just a picture of family discord through and through. That's how bad the wickedness is. And what I want you to consider is now Micah's going to say, what are you supposed to do with all of this wickedness? So in a world that looks like this, how are the people of God supposed to live? What are they supposed to do? What should the upright do when the world is falling down like this, when there's wickedness all around and even gets to the point that you can't trust anyone anymore because everyone's that bad? Verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I want you to see that here's the hope. You look to God. The only hope is to be able to look to God, to look to God, to answer prayer regarding this wickedness. We've seen this many times in Micah where he's describing the hope of the people of God is not to take matters into their own hands, but calling out to God that God would give the rescue, that God would give the help. And he says there in verse seven, I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm going to wait for God. Verse 8, he will be my light. He will be the one to give me vindication. He will be the one to give to deal a vengeance on my enemies. Verse 10, over and over again, you see Micah saying, I've got to put these things in God's hands. Even with the, the decay of the culture falling down around me, I'm going to trust God. He will be my light. I will look to him. He will deal with my enemies. And it is an important reminder that what Micah is saying is, is that we must continue to walk with God even when a nation turns away from God. I mean, Micah is standing here saying, friends, there's nobody faithful anymore. The best person you can find is like a thorn bush. That's how great it is. You can't trust your friends, your co-workers, your family. Trust no one because it's that wicked. Now, what should the people of God do? Hope in God. Hope in God to do something. Look to God to be the light. Look to God to be the vindicator. That we would still live differently in a world like that. That we would still be a light. Even in a world that is that dark. As much as we might look at our world and go, man, things are getting bad. I don't think they sound like this yet. And here is Micah going, here's how you handle that. You need to put your hope in God. And God will deal with the nation. God will deal with the circumstances. I want to slow down over two verses, though. Because what Micah says here is, I think, powerful and hopeful. Look at verse 8. Rejoice not over, over me, O my enemy, 
When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. I want you to notice something where Micah's stance is not everybody out there is so wicked and I am amazing. I am righteous. I am great. And man, Lord, barbecue them because they stink. Notice his perspective is I'm also bearing indignation of God because I've sinned too. And I want you to see a second big truth that God is teaching us here is that even when we sin, we can still hope in God. That's what Micah is doing here is saying, I failed God. I have sinned. I'm bearing the weight of judgment as well. But then he says at the end of verse nine, he's going to plead my cause and he will bring judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I will look to him for vindication. And so even though he has certainly fallen short in his life with God should not cause him to say, well, I guess I shouldn't talk to God about these things. Instead, I want you to notice that he says, I'm still trusting in God. That friends, our failures should not keep us from ever being able to trust in God for vindication and rescue. Micah is holding on to a personal hope here and saying, even though I've sinned, I know I can still hope in God. And I will look to him to be my light and to be my vindication even though I failed, even though I've missed the mark as well. And I think it is a great picture that we can still hope in God after failures. And so often we can feel like, well, our failures have have cut us off from God. It's too late. There's no hope. I can't come back to God. And he's saying, I was in that spot. I bear the indignation. And yet I'm still hoping in God. And you should too. Which leads to the third big truth, which is how this prophecy ends. Where Mike is now going to say, do you know who this God is? Because there's nobody like him. In verse 14, he says, speaks of God as shepherding his people. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of the garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt and show them marvelous things. Here's. Here's Micah saying, be a shepherd again and do what you did in the past. Do marvelous works. Do great things. But here's the great things that he, he's ultimately wanting. The marvelous things are not going to be, okay, we're going to part the Red Sea again and all walk through on dry land. Listen to what the great things are that God will do. Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. So notice what Micah ends with. He says, who is like this God? 
who passes over sins and pardons iniquities. Who is a God like this that would do something and basically the opposite of what we deserve? This is what he's praising. I want you to see the God that you have. Here are the mighty wonders that God does. And what God does is he does the opposite of what we deserve. He does the opposite of what we should receive. Instead, he forgives transgression. He pardons iniquity. Listen to the picture at the end of verse 18. He doesn't stay angry forever, but he delights in showing compassion and mercy. Doesn't stay angry forever. Our failures before God does not mean that God's disposition to us will now forever be for the rest of our days the wrath of God. Instead, He says, I delight in showing mercy. That's what God enjoys doing. Did you grow up with a God where you thought God's delight was anger and wrath and barbecuing people? Sometimes God's taught that way. And this is the God that we serve. He is so frightening that who could ever possibly deal with him? And God says, no. Instead, I delight in showing compassion and mercy. I don't stay angry forever. Yes, there is the wrath of God for sin. But there is a means by which God can forgive iniquity and overlook sin and pardon his people. He presses that picture again in verse 19 when he says he will again have compassion on us. Listen to the first picture. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Picture it. He's taking all of your sins and walking on them, destroying them as he tramples them into the ground. So imagine him taking your sins and just just stomping on them, just trampling them down so that you can't even see them. It just pulverizes them. The sins are just trampled down. Or the other imagery he uses in verse 19. He throws all your sins into the depths of the sea. Have you ever lost anything in the ocean? It's easy to lose something in the ocean, isn't it? I lost my glasses once in the ocean. (laughs) Never found those again. (laughs) Now's bad because I don't see without my glasses. Just gone. You can search and search and search. Forget about it. Your sins, God says, are thrown into the sea. You're not going to find them. They're not coming back. They're not going to wash up. They're over. They're gone. They're trampled down. They're sent away. They're washed away. In verse 20, here's God saying, that's the faithfulness of God. That's what God means when he says he's faithful. This is what the steadfast love of God looks like. Anytime that we doubt that God could trample our sins underfoot or cast our sins into the sea, we're supposed to remember this. God is faithful. And God delights in steadfast love. And God always does what he says. And he says, I'm throwing your sins in the ocean. He says, I'm putting your sins under my feet and I'm walking all over them. 
He says, I won't stay angry forever. I will come back to you with a disposition of compassion. I'll come back to you with a disposition of mercy. I will pardon your iniquities and I will forgive your sins. The opposite of what's deserved, that's what God does for us. And that's why verse 18, the Micah says, who is a God like you? There is no God like this. There is no God whose response to our sinning and our rebellion is mercy and forgiveness and trampling down the sins and casting them into the sea and God being faithful to his people. The picture is beautiful of how Micah ends the scene. God is saying, I can't overlook the sins forever. I am being patient I can't just allow it to go on and on and on and on and on. I see the sinning. Something is going to happen and God is going to take away their prosperity and take away their blessings because they're refusing to obey the Lord. And God is in control of that happening. But the picture is essentially if the nation continues to go down the path of sin, judgment was coming. But if we would look to God. If the people could turn their ways and look to the faithful God and look to him for mercy and grace. That God says, my anger doesn't last forever. And instead, I will show faithfulness, compassion and love. As we conclude the book of Mike and conclude the lesson tonight, I want you to think about the simple imagery That he will show compassion to you and he will throw your sins into the sea if you'll just come to him. If you just come to him and give him your life and seek him with all of your heart, he pardons iniquities, he offers compassion, and he wants you to be a follower of him. He doesn't desire wrath, but desires to reverse your condition and show you love and steadfast faithfulness. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing prophecy that we see from your servant Micah. And Lord, it reminds us how you are ultimately in control of all things. And Lord, we know, we know, Lord, that we are a nation going the wrong direction, a nation that does not seek you, does not seek your glory nor seek your ways. And Lord, you have certainly blessed us richly beyond belief, perhaps greater than any nation or civilization ever in the past. And Lord, we are keenly aware that we have taken the physical blessings and riches that you have bestowed upon this land and essentially turned our back on you. And Lord, we know that we are worthy of judgment for that. And Lord, it's our prayer that Just as Micah prayed that you would do excellent and mighty works, that those works would cause people to turn their hearts back to you before it's too late. We know, Lord, that you are not overlooking our sins. We know that you see all that is going on in our culture and in our nation. We know we are worthy of judgment. And God, we pray upon your patience, Lord, that you would be patient with us further as we attempt to be lights in this world. And Lord, we pray that people would turn 
away from evil and seek you with all of their heart. If they turn away from these futile things and see the kind of God you are. And Lord, help us to always be impressed by your character. You are a forgiving God. And you are a loving God and you are a compassionate God. Lord, thank you for taking our sins and throwing them into the sea and trampling them underfoot. We know we don't deserve that. We know that we ought to be held in account for every sin that we've committed. Thank you for throwing them away. And Lord, we know that's only possible because of your son. It's only possible because of his suffering and because of his death, because of his resurrection, that you can still be just as you justify us from our sinning. Thank you for your wisdom and your mercy. And Lord, we pray that your greatness and what you've done for us would only impress upon our hearts to be more faithful to you in the days ahead than we've been faithful in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to a God who says, I'll take care of your sins. I won't remember them anymore. I'll cast them into the depths of the sea. They'll never come up again. If you give your life to him this very night, would you turn away from your sins? Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Begin a faithful walk with him this very night. Won't you do that now while we stand, while we sing?